Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. Defending the mystical body and the communion of saints. So, for listeners who might be new to our show, why don't you give the Reader's Digest explanation of just exactly what that means? Well, it's uh, it's can only be understood through faith, but the mystical body of Christ is actually. You know, the glorified body of Christ in all those who have entered the promise of Abraham fulfilled. And we're going to explain this. And when we do so, I, I really w- would like people to, you know, to, to, to really focus in because it's going to be very deep. And uh, these, are, these are things that... Uh, People in the faith and saints in the faith, uh, you know, saints have uh, have contemplated, you know, in their entire lives. So it's it's going to be a lot of things that uh, Protestantism really really hasn't seen before. Also, so as we do so, we'll find that uh, as we discuss different topics about you know, the Catholic faith. When we use scripture to prove them, we will often overlap using the same verses to give clarity to, to multiple topics. This is part of that uh, seamless fabric of scripture, constantly repeating the image of the one covenant reality, which uh, the entire covenant reality, reality spiritually is simply summed up in the word Jesus. You know, I, I personally vision this, this mystical body of Christ as a womb that... Uh, into eternity 
and a womb on earth uh, that is nourished by the sacraments and, and truth through love. Mm-hmm. And I think what all what encompasses it is both the uh, the seamless fabric of scripture that you talk about and this mystical body is all encompassed in the in the word we. It it kind of goes against this idea of me and Jesus alone, that Jesus has all these individual personal relationships with all these separated people, and there are ways in which Jesus' relationship with you is is personal and unique, but we are all connected. We're all connected, and I remember when I was a kid that I went to a Protestant, Protestant Sunday school, and they took a whole bunch of biblical passages and they put them in like this fishbowl and you would you would reach down in the fishbowl and you would pull out a biblical passage and you never knew what you were going to get. That is kind of the way that they look at the body of Christ and it's kind of the way that they look at the scripture. It's, it's a whole bunch of disconnected fragments and all that began with uh, with the development of Protestantism. So uh, kind of continue and go into that. Yeah, it's a Catholics and uh, Jews uh, look at this uh, salvation process inside the image of a covenant family, while Protestants uh, uh, look at it more as an individual. Uh, so when Protestantism began to develop, it began to separate from the religion ritual uh, in Scripture which Paul calls us to live in obedience to the faith in. In turn, it kind of separated good people from living the, the new covenant. In turn, in the, in the construct of separation they created, they separated from the seamless fabric of Scripture because in order to separate from 1,400 years of truth, they had to take a cookie cutter to, to Scripture. And uh, you can see, you see somebody taking this cookie cutter to this dough. And everywhere where the cookie cutter didn't enclose, you have these outside lines, and you have so much so much dough left. And without all this dough, you really can't put everything together. So they took a cookie cutter to Scripture, creating a new false exegesis, new concepts, and even new definitions. The, through this process, they actually compartmentalized Scripture according to certain themes they wanted to express. And in the process, they, they, they separated from the, the Catholic Church. And so this is why they cannot see the communion of saints, and they developed a false image of prayer and, and mediator. What Paul refers to mediator in Scripture, Paul is coming from the perspective uh, being a Pharisee and understanding Levitical law, including its you know its its sacrificial nature. So he is he is seen mediator as much more than a mediator of prayer, and Protestants tend to just you know see the word prayer when 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 they think of mediator. But uh, every day Paul witnessed the Jews bringing sacrifices to the temple. Every day he witnessed Levitical priests as mediators and offering sacrifice for specific sins. And the purification process 
for these sins in order to be righteous in the kingdom among the body of the Jewish nation. So purification, including the sprinkling of blood of the sacrifice. In the New Covenant, Paul saw mediator as uh, as Jesus, as our high priest Melchizedek, as head of the mystical body, which is the church. Because uh, he talks about uh, Christ being head of the body. So the body and the head are have this intrinsic unity. And what you see is a lot of things that are going on with the head are also going on with the body. So uh, this mystical body, which, which is the church, which has been redeemed from original sin through baptism. He saw the Christ, the anointed, as and, and mediator to the Father of the entire new covenant, uh, fulfilling the type in the mystery of, uh, of Yom Kippur, even, uh, where you know, the high priest brought his own body into the, you know, the Holy of Holies. So even bringing his spiritual body into the holies uh, with him is, is, is part of the spiritual reality which occurs in, 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 the, in the Holy Mass, which is the true Passover. So he had images in his mind of covenant and covenant oath and memorials of covenants in presentation to the Father of those memorials. Uh, like uh, an example would be like we see in Leviticus 24-7. In uh, Leviticus 24-7, we, we read, Thou shalt take also fine flour, and shalt bake twelve loaves thereof. Two-tenths shall be in every loaf, and thou shalt set them six and six, one against another, uh, upon the most clean table before the Lord. And thou shalt put upon them the dearest frankincense, that the bread may be for a memorial of the oblation of the Lord. Every Sabbath they shall be changed before the Lord, be received of the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. When we hear that word everlasting, we should always look for, you know, things fulfilled. Christ says, I have not come to abolish law, but to fulfill the law. Uh, it's not just the Ten Commandments that are fulfilled. It's everything uh, in Leviticus, <clears throat> but it's fulfilled in heavenly realities. Uh, Images of types in in the old covenant become heavenly realities in the new. So every Sabbath, the Levitical priests ate uh, the bread of the presence consecrated or made holy by the Shekinah cloud uh, that overshadowed the holy uh, holy of holies. So, of course, Catholics see these memorials as fulfilled in the Holy Mass, but uh, I want the audience to to pic- picture this in their mind. And so they they get a, a direction of where we're going. See, the Shekinah separated the Israelites from the Egyptians as they were fleeing Egypt, which is a sign for sin. The Shekinah overshadowed the bread of the presence. The Shekinah overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant. The Shekinah overshadowed Mary, establishing the Incarnation. The Shekinah is present at our baptism, bringing us into the mystical body of Christ. The Shekinah consecrates the Eucharist in much of the same way it overshadows Mary. Of course, the Shekinah is the Holy Spirit. I mean, anybody you know who has a basic knowledge of Christianity can you know could could, could see that. Uh, in the Jewish Encyclopedia, uh, we'll read here from the Encyclopedia. 
This says the, man, the majestic presence or manifestation of God, which has descended to dwell among men. And, of course, inside the body of Christ, uh, Jesus told us that he would send the Holy Spirit to teach us all truth, obviously referring to, to the, the church being taught all the truth here through the Holy Spirit. The Shekinah consecrates the marriage between a perfect groom and an imperfect bride. And, and this is basically, you, you could sum up the, the entire covenant mystery, the entire Bible uh, in, in this relationship. So we'll build on this understanding up in layers as we move on. Because I say it's, 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 it's really deep. So we have to take it a little bit at a time and, and continue to build on it. And... The foundation of this, you know, get, getting back to, you know, the problem, uh, the foundation of this compartmentalizing in Protestantism is the heretical doctrines of faith alone, scripture alone. And as we discussed in our last presentation, born and separated from baptism is separation from the promise of, of Abraham fulfilled. It is a separation from the full union with the mystical body, body of Christ. Uh, Satan's deceptions have, have, have been that complete. And outside of the truth, uh, it creates a compartmentalization of the mind as they read scripture even. And it is God who said they will see and not see and hear and not hear. So I would ask our Protestant brothers and sisters that they say just a one-word prayer before we move on. Apatha, or be opened. Yeah, that's the word that Jesus used when he uh, healed the uh, deaf man. So that he may hear. Yep. So Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. Irenaeus taught that understanding comes from understanding God's covenants with man. And we uh, he, this leads us to think about how you know how those covenants are fulfilled. Uh, the last covenant is fulfilled in union with, with Jesus Christ through His glorified body and blood. But if you do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, then you do not have the key to visualize to visualizing in your soul God's last covenant with man. To me, I. Uh, I see that God designed the key to understanding to be dying to the wisdom of this world and a process of believing in him when he said, this is my body. So everything that God established is to reverse what happened to our souls in the Garden of Eden when ego entered the world. Paul said, the cup of benediction that we bless is just not participation of blood of Christ. I also said, God uses the base things of the world, the contemptible things, so that we do not glory in man's wisdom, but glory in God. So the Eucharist is obviously base and contemptible to those who do not believe. Yet what we also see here is that true faith is truly dying to dying to self, to what we want to believe, and instead choose obedience to God, even without fully understanding things. And uh, this this was, you know, what the Israelites were supposed to do. I mean, they did all these different, you know, crazy, uh, you know, Levitical offerings and things. And you know, they really didn't, you know, understand what they were doing. But they also didn't understand that, that was, you know, they were doing it so that we could see the true reality of the sacraments in our own souls. 
The church through the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah, establishes this process of humility in the sacramental life where through obedience to God's words, even, even though we cannot truly comprehend them, uh, we learn to go from ego or the example of the garden, from ego or eating the fruit of the tree due to Satan using man's ego against him to submission and believing something we, we cannot come close to fully understanding, uh, but, uh, but we believe it due to our love of Jesus and for our benevolent Father God, who knows what we need to nurture the wounds of our souls in fallen nature uh, with, with perfect knowledge. So we do not even know really ourselves because we do not have the, the perfect imagery of how our souls seek God and how our egos often reject our very soul's desires. So it's a, we're always conflicted in our fallen nature. So we do not know how many demons, you know, kind of a, an example of imagery. We do not know how many demons are, are actually on our shoulders trying to stop us from always living in truth as it is revealed to the soul, uh, like Eve being tempted in the garden. So God takes account throughout our entire lives every time truth is revealed to our, our souls in an act of grace and how the mind clouded by ego responds, moving closer to God or denying God's truths, which uh, often takes a, a you know a lifetime. We we end up taking a lifetime of of you know going through instances over and over and over again, where we choose denying to uh, to deny self, or we choose self, and of course he sees the demons on the shoulders. He sees what we're dealing with, but. Therefore, Scripture tells us, he who knows what is right and refuses to do so, for him this is sin. And Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body. So Adam and Eve were unclothed. They did not understand guilt and ego uh, before the fall. They're, it's an image of being completely united with God. So after they fell from union with God through self-love, they began to recognize their nakedness. Uh, this is an allegory for separation from God for the entire human race through our own false development of this disease of, of self-worth. We have no worth. We, we can't lift a pinky without you know God's intervention. Uh, so one is uh, Paul refers to Adam as the man of flesh and sin, while Christ, whom we are born again into through our baptism is a quickening spirit. So one is of ego, the other is of pure love. Jesus shows us an almost incomprehensible uh, example of humility and love for us by, as the ruler of the universe, coming to us in the form of bread. Now, this is also known as the divine condescension, which is it's, it's just unfathomable, the, the, the humility here. So first in the human form and then into the Eucharist, uh, Catholicism is beautiful. Just contemplating the depths of Christ's love in, in the divine condescension is, is just beautiful. So we can never give a, a more perfect example of humility than Jesus, who has fully God and fully man, cleaned the dirty feet of his apostles. So when I hear people saying, I do not submit to man, uh, I know these words aren't of God. 
Luke, what you're saying or what it sounds like you're saying is that humility is the key that unlocks uh, ignorance. So if a, uh, you know, I, I've heard people make this argument, well, you know, an atheist doesn't believe in God, so how can he be held accountable to God's law? But it's it's the it's the lack of humility that opens a person up to uh, that does, that prevents a person from being opened up to the truth. So it, it's one thing when a person doesn't come to the truth or the fullness of the truth, despite their best efforts. And then it's another thing when a person doesn't come to the truth uh, because through their own ego, they, they set up roadblocks to the truth, right? That it, can you kind of explain how that works? Well, well, yes. And, uh, the other thing is Satan put in place a deadly deception. You know, with faith alone for weak souls, uh, it separates man from the fear of God. If you think you're just, you know, once saved, always saved, uh, you don't even realize it. But you, but you are separated from that process of all, always wanting to be, you know, perfectly aligned with your benevolent father. Because if you're not, your father's going to punish you. <laughs> I mean, and that punishment is something human nature needs. You know, right. we have to have checks and balances. And so this fear of God, if uh, Scripture tells us the fear of God sure, is the beginning of wisdom. Fear you're talking about now. Yeah, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of a holy is prudence. Right. So if we, if we don't start out with just the idea of enough humility to understand that we could be wrong in our perceptions of the universe, then we're never going to get to the point where we truly understand God. But it's only through humility and grace that a soul, uh, you know, it says a fear of God, which is that servile fear, is the beginning of wisdom. But the soul on the path to holiness obviously should move from that to move from that servile fear to that filial fear, which is holding God in awe. And in in the case of the latter person, the fear of sin is not the fear of punishment, but the fear of offending God because of our love for him. And that's the path that the soul should move on, but that's only possible through through humility and obedience. Yes, that's a, that's a very good uh, drawing out and, and clarification, because our fear as, as Christians, the member of the family of God, is is a fear of going against the love of a benevolent Father, and that that is our Father God, and so in our love for Him is our obedience for Him. So, uh, Paul tells us, and, and all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So, again, checks and balances and obedience is where we get the growth of our souls. So, this entire biblical mystery uh, through the Old Testament and throughout the New is a mystery of, of a correction. 
from separation from God to return into his, his family through the very glorified flesh of Christ by becoming the body of Christ through a practice of humility and submission in obedience to the faith. Now, Paul, who was a Catholic priest who taught the religion and ritual of the New Covenant, explained that it was his duty to bring about obedience to the faith. Um, Irenaeus, uh, uh, who was a disciple of uh, Polycarp, was a disciple of John the Apostle, said all the apostles were priests. So in faith we are not naked, we're, we're clothed in Christ. And true expressions of faith, there, there is no ego, because we recognize the gifts of grace and begin to see our temporary trials through our eternal souls united to Christ. And uh, there's no true faith outside of unconditional love in our process of transforming grace to which we are saved. So our salvation is nothing less than our growth into the very nature of Christ, while inside the womb and the mystical body nourished by the sacramental realities. And in this state uh, of being, there is the gift of being able to contemplate being in the internal state with God, who is perfect love, even, even contemplating it through being in this eternal state, in this perfect joy, and looking back into time. And when we do this, everything but union with God just becomes folly. It becomes completely insignificant because we see it as all ego. So, And here's where we can find heaven on earth by understanding there's only two foundational emotions, love and fear. Love leads you closer to God and his truths and the ability to submit in obedience to the faith of those truths, while fear as a product of ego keeps you from letting go keeps you even from God's rule for all of Christianity to love our enemies and pray for those who, who, who persecute us. And fear repeats the words of Satan, I will not serve. Well, Paul calls us to obedience to faith in the sacramental life. Therefore, it is God who calls us to uh, as a benevolent father. And we are called to respond as children who do not truly comprehend but know that the way the Father established for us is, is, is what is absolutely perfect for us. Um, as a prophet Isaiah tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways, my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are exalted above the earth, so are my ways exalted above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. So contemplating these words, we repeat God's words, This is my body. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are a thousand times above your thoughts. And these are the words that are the key to opening up the entire Bible to the soul. So I want to ask our Protestant brothers and sisters from this point, even uh, look at this hypothetically. Say, what if? What if God's words are true when he said, this is my body and my flesh is true food? And hypothetical image in, in, in your mind throughout uh, the rest of this discussion. So I will use the word visualizing uh, through the soul because it conceptualizes the mysteries. It, it, it takes both reason, humility, and through grace, uh, a uniting of these mysteries in the soul, creating something that uh, 
we cannot ever do a good job of putting to words, but, but simply when accepting it through faith, it begins to open us up to the spiritual state of being inside the body of Christ. And it, David was, was on to something when he said pray unceasingly because this, this state of being in, in our life is, is simply to contemplate in, in, in this unceasing prayer. So it is in this state of being that Paul told the church which lives inside you know, the Christ consciousness. He tells the church, Howbeit we speak the wisdom among the perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, neither the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, a wisdom which is hidden, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for if they had known it, known it they would never have crucified our, our Lord of glory. But as is written, the eye hath not seen, nor nor hear, ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man what things God hath prepared for them that love him. But to us, church, the church guided by the Holy Spirit he's referring to here, hath revealed them by his spirit, for the spirit searcheth all things, he the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, but the spirit of man that is in him. So the things also that are of God, no man knoweth, but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit that is of God, that we may know the things that are given us from God, which things we also speak, not in the learned words of human wisdom, but in the doctrine of the spirit, comparing spiritually things with spiritual and Paul goes on, but the sensual man perceiveth not these things that are the Spirit of God, for it is foolishness to him, and he cannot understand because it is spiritually examined. But the spiritual man judgeth all things, and he himself is judged by no man. And uh, for who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ we being inside the mystical body of Christ. And if Satan knew that Christ's crucifixion would unite man into the body of Christ and establish baptism and the true Passover for, for the general redemption of the world, reversing Satan's work in the Garden of Eden, then Satan would never have been involved in his crucifixion. So, you know, Paul says we speak the wisdom of the perfect. And you now I, I I get in the back of my head when I say these things, you know, that uh, I need to explain that, you know, this this is not anything that you know we look at as being superior, making us superior to anybody, it's because because again, you know, we can't even lift our pinkies to the grace of God uh, unless we, we unless we have God, you know, sustaining the universe, God sustaining matter. Everything is of God. So, uh, if we if we have any truth in us, it's you know it, it is by God's grace. So I, I need to put that there as a as a disclaimer. So the, the saints in the church were those who were living obedience to faith and the sacramental life, on the way of transforming grace uh, blamelessly. And uh, these are who he uh, Paul refers to. You know those are the of the, of the perfect who have the mind of Christ, and and in the church in general, of course, but. We see this through seeing the seamless fabric of Scripture. We do not see it through the cookie-cutter process of Protestantism. 
and and their goal to separate from the Catholic Church. So this, like I said, it almost sounds arrogant, but it is simply Bible. Uh, we are called to holiness, but that doesn't mean, you know, we should water down truth in order to not hurt feelings. You know, the greatest expression of love is to lead one from error to truth, and and most of the time when a Protestant moves from error to truth, you know, God breaks a heart. So we, we also must take into consideration, you know, how the apostles were given the most holy mysteries of the universe during a time of persecution. And those mysteries also fulfilled the types the Israelites lived in the Mosaic law. So they had to tread lightly. And uh, uh, I, I think I'll stop for, for a minute here and then I'll let you interject. No, I, I, I'm wrapped. I want you to keep continuing because I'm wrapped to every word you're saying here. <laughs> okay. Uh, I can imagine how Jews would become irate and, and, and very violent. And this isn't anti-Semitic. This is just logic. Uh, you know, the Jews are, you know, our ancestors, you know. Uh, so uh, these same Jews said, free Barabbas, crucified, crucified Jesus, the, the Jews at the time. So what would all of the Jews think if they were told outright with, with no veiling of the scriptures by the apostles? the first century Christians, that uh, their bread of the presence was only a type for the Eucharist. The menorah only, the menorah only a, a type for the cross. Uh, did you want to say something? No, I, I said that was a good question. What, what would they think? It was a very good question. But you said the menorah as a, as a type for the cross um, – isn't the menorah kind of a type of the new creation, the eight days uh, being a type of the well, new you, creation? You could see it that way, too. But the, the St. Thomas cross, when uh, St. Thomas uh, went to India, uh, the, the tradition is that uh, he created the St. Thomas cross. It's actually a cross be, between it, it's, it's, it's the menorah, and it's the cross actually on the face of it. So we could say that it is an image of salvation through all ages of time. Mm -hmm. The cross actually saves those before us and after us. So also the bronze laver, the Levitical priest needed to wash in before entering the veil or sacrificing at the altar, only a type for baptism into the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. Uh, the meeting tent in the temple hides the mysteries of salvation through Christ in the church. Even that their priesthood was, was only a type for the uh, Catholic priesthood of the order of Melchizedek to come. Uh, that the prophecy of the reestablished kingdom of David in, in the book of Amos has been fulfilled in the universal church. That Jesus as king handed over the keys of the kingdom to his chief ambassador, Peter, in turn, establishing apostolic succession in the kingdom until the king returns, even that their prophecy of going up to Mount Zion in order to learn the wisdom of God is fulfilled in the Holy Spirit, teaching through the church, which is the true spiritual reality of the body of Christ, the spiritual Israel, with Christ as head of the body and, and mediator to the Father. So why did Paul say, Before, uh, Behold, Israel according to the flesh? are not those who offer the sacrifice partakers of the altar. 
Why did he say we have an altar at which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat of? Because he's contrasting the Israel of the flesh with the Israel of the spirit we are baptized into. This mystical body, you know, Paul says the former indeed had also justification of divine services and a worldly sanctuary. He says this in contrast to the heavenly reality of Israel and the sacramental reality of divine service in the true Passover inside the mystical body of Christ celebrated the hosts of heaven. These things had to be approached very lightly because they would rock the entire world of Judaism. Right. Let's uh, revisit something you said just a few minutes ago, talking about Yom Kippur. Now, that was the only day of the year. That was the Day of Atonement. That was the only day in which the priest entered into the sanctuary, correct? Yes, the high priest, once a year. Uh, Okay. So because of that, we know that um, Yom Kippur... Uh, by by what it says in, in Luke, we know that Yom Kippur was the day in which the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah because he entered into the sanctuary to offer incense and the entire multitude of the people were outside in the city. So that tells us that that was on Yom Kippur, correct? Yes. Okay. Well, it's very interesting. Do you know what day Yom Kippur falls this year? Tell me. September 25th. What's interesting (laughs) about that is that uh, it also fell on September 25th in 3 BC. And, of course, the Bible tells us that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, and that would be March 25th. And then, of course, nine months later, Christ was born on December 25th. So just thought you'd find it very interesting that this year falls in the same pattern with the the ninth of Av being when the rotation began on on, uh, July 27th and 28th. It fell this year. That's when the the, um, rotation began. Do you know why the rotation began on the ninth of Av? No, I don't. It was a day that was, uh, it was originally the day that uh, God sent the 12 spies to um, scout the Holy Land, um, the Promised Land, rather, and said that he had delivered it under their hands. And they came back and, you know, woe, woe was us. Uh, these, this is a race of giants. We could never conquer them. And as a result of that, God cursed the day and made them wander the desert for 40 years. And um, a multitude of disasters have happened to the Jewish people on that day, including one in 135 AD when 600,000 Jews were killed. It's it's known as the most cursed day in the history of Judaism. Well, in 537 BC, on the 9th of Av, the temple was sacked by the Babylonians. And when they rebuilt the temple, they decided to start the rotation on the 9th of Av as a commemoration of that, kind of as, let's never forget how we messed up (laughs) again, I guess. (laughs) Uh, And then in 70 AD, the temple was sacked again, this time by the Romans, and it again was on the 9th of Av. So, 
Yeah, that, that's that's fascinating. Your wealth of knowledge, yeah. and you know that, that that's that's one of the examples of in 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 the body of Christ, how much you know we come together uh, in that knowledge and, and just put everything together. You know, one person has this, another has this to add, another person has this to has, add, and, and, and you just get that seamless fabric. I mean, and, and just, you're and you're so right. Luke and and I appreciate you saying that I have a huge wealth of knowledge. Uh, all I just all I know is what I've heard from other people. <laughs> so, um, but well, yeah, that's, that's, that you, that's of course of course normal. <laughs> yeah, but one thing but you said other, that those other people going back in time were you know just part of the church, right? But one thing that you said that's absolutely apropos is that sola scriptura doesn't get get you there. Unless you understand the history and tradition and the teaching of the church, you don't know that the rotation began on the ninth of Av because the scriptures doesn't say that. So proves that you need the, the support of the church in order to bring the scriptures to life. So, definitely. Definitely. So in the early church during persecution, um, the sign of the fish was used in a secret way to identify other Christians. A Christian would approach someone and, and make an ark in the dirt on the ground. And if another Christian made another ark uh, attached to the previous ark at the top, then crossing at the bottom, you can see the form here, uh, you, you form the fish. And then they would know that they were in the company of a brother. So the original letters and epistles were kept and guarded in the heart of the church. And Catholics went to their deaths uh, for for protecting these manuscripts. And there were no Protestants there. This is all Catholics protecting what would be later the Bible. So in the catacombs, the most prevalent images were the images of the miracle of loaves and fishes, showing how Jesus perpetuates his glorified body through the sacraments, feeding as many as needed. And uh, in the in, in the covenant we we address this in the covenant memorial in Leviticus we we see the twelve loaves and in the miracle of the fishes we see twelve extra baskets and Jesus's body and blood feeds all who come to the table the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles representing the world of the universal church just like you know, the twelve tribes that you, you picture the image of them surrounding. Uh, uh, the, the the meeting tent. So every everything that sustains them, the, their their spiritual existence, is is vibrates out from the from from, from the meeting tent, mm-hmm. and uh, what you know what they pitch their tents around. And uh, uh, getting back into this process, uh, Diocletian, who was in a, who was an emperor in 303 A.D., uh, wrote an edict that all scripture was to be destroyed. And it was, uh, of course, Catholics that went to their deaths, you know, protecting them. So there were no faith alone, scripture alone, once saved, always saved, born again, separate from baptism, believers there. And the early church even lived by, you know, the, what it was called as the discipline of the secret. And the, the word's actually a later word, but, but the actual act is, is, is pretty well known. Now, the church explained this 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 depth of understanding that was that was given and not plainly written down, but was given before people entered the the sacramental life. And we went deep into the, this mystagogy in our in our last show, 
So we'll just touch on it uh, a little here. Uh, for those who did not listen to the last show, of course, you're welcome to go back and listen to that show, which will give you more of a foundation for what we are discussing here. Uh, that, that show is on the, uh, the basically the, uh, the diabolical deception of, of the born again movement and how their movement actually separates you from even entering the promise of Abraham fulfilled. So, uh, there's a father, uh, a Franciscan priest, a Father Angela Grieger, and he writes about you know, the mystagogy. And uh, he says the mystagogy it was particularly necessary because of a custom practice from the earliest times of the church called the Disciplina Arcana, or the Discipline of the Secret, uh, whereby the most profound mysteries of the faith were, were kept hidden from heathens and from even the catechumens preparing for baptism. Now, the special but not only object of this discipline was the Eucharistic sacrifice and the sacrament. And he writes, St. Bonaventure says that we must enter the tomb with Jesus into another enclosed space, and there we must die and experience the suspension of our senses. He is not necessarily referring to ecstasy, but what belongs more fundamentally to the mystical life, namely a new way of thinking that is not dependent on what we see, but on what the Lord tells us. Of course, uh, he goes on, first of all, that means what the church teaches, but it also must mean the manner in which we assimilate it through our own efforts to surrender in faith. In the, in the silence of prayer. And uh, Dr. Scott Hahn gives us a, l a little more of uh, the imagery here. And uh, Dr. Scott Hahn writes, says the Greek fathers following, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the Greek fathers following St. Paul called the sacraments the mysteries, and they are indeed the fulfillment of all the successive covenants in the mysterious, mysterious plan of God. The church and her apostles, and in turn their successors, serve as stewards of the mysteries of God. And uh, here uh, Scott Hahn is quoting 1 Corinthians 4.1. So the early Christians, he goes on, <clears throat> the, uh, after I'm through with this part, I'm gonna, hold on one second, I'm going to get a drink of water. Dr. Hahn goes on. The early Christians explained the sacraments by means of a method, method they called mystagogy, an initiation into the divine mysteries, the hidden plan of the saving work of Christ. The mystagogy moves a Christian's awareness from the visible to the invisible, from the temporal to the eternal, from the human to the divine, from the earthly to the heavenly, from the sacraments to the mysteries. Typology shows us how Christ fulfills the Old Covenant. Mystagogy shows us how Christ sends the Spirit to extend his fulfillment uh, to us, to bring us into his, his new covenant. The body of Christ that is risen and ascended in glory is the new covenant, and it radiates out through the Spirit to encompass each one of us through the liturgy and the sacraments. And you, and this is a a difficult process. It's not it's not simple to transform from that fleshy 
sense-centered uh, sort of way of doing things and seeing things into that uh, grace, humility, obedience-centered way of doing things. The process can be can be kind of painful. And St. John of the Cross and, and St. Teresa of Avila both dealt with this process in in their in their works, the Dark Night of the Soul and the Interior Castle. Um, but it's it's uh, it's a difficult process that we all have to go through because. Where God wants us sometimes doesn't look at all like where we wanted ourselves or even where we thought that God wanted us. It's a, it's a radical transformation. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, getting back to this, you know, this, this, this time of persecution again and what was going on, uh, St. Basil wrote, Concerning the teachings of the church, whether publicly proclaimed, kerygma, mata, or reserved yeah, to the members of the house. If I can, interrupt, if I can interrupt real quick. Go ahead. Give us a, give us a time frame here of St. Saint, Saint Basil. About when did he write this? I think this is probably in the 4th century, Basil. Somewhere around there. Maybe, maybe beginning. Uh, offhand, I, I can't give you an exact time. So r- roughly fourth century. Yeah. So yeah, roughly. Okay. <laughs> it might be very roughly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I just wanted I'm to kind of get a theology. You know, <laughs> no, I just wanted to kind of get a get a get a sense of where we are here. Oh, All right. Please definitely. continue. Yeah. So concerning the teachings of the church, whether publicly proclaimed, carry uh, amata or reserved members of the household of faith, dogmata. We have received some from written sources, while others have been given to us secretly through the apostolic tradition. Both sources have equal force in true religion. No one would deny either source, no one at any rate who is even slightly familiar with the ordinance of the church. If we attack the unwritten customs, claiming them to be of little importance, we would fatally mutilate the gospel. No matter what our intentions are, rather, we would reduce the gospel into bare words. So apostolic tradition was simply the faith lived. And as I have said uh, many times in the past, uh, we misuse reason when it comes to the epistles. And this is getting back to that. You're just talking about sola scriptura. They were written to people who already had a basic understanding of the faith. Apostles stayed with for up to three years, and uh, Paul stayed with people three years. With a lot of the apostles, they could have stayed with people longer. You know, Paul was going out establishing churches, so they are limited to addressing what was pressing on the mind of the author at the time, and are in, in no way a catechism of faith. The first catechism was possibly written by the apostles around 70 A.D or maybe even a little er- earlier, because uh, there's n- nothing mentioned about the destruction of the temple uh, here. Uh, this is the Didache, and we discussed the Didache a few times. But it, in, in the Didache, it tells us that uh, no one is to receive the Eucharist until they are baptized into the church, because Jesus says, do not give what is holy to the dogs. And this is one of the foundations for the Disciplina Arcania, the discipline of the secret is God telling us that these things are holy and we must protect them. So 
It is basically a saying no one has received the Eucharist until they have entered the mystical body of Christ, because entering the mystical body of Christ is through our baptism. So scripture refers to the way uh, in an ambiguous way, and, and do this, people falsely understand that the use of the word as the name of, uh, of the original church. So the Didache teaches the way of holiness in the sacramental life, and the early church actually used the phrase the way in describing confession as part of the way of life. So there's, there's no clear example of... Uh, having this previous knowledge and, and the need for teaching the mystagogy that in Paul's words writing to the church at Corinth. And uh, like I said, we're, we're going to repeat things because uh, they will have uh, different purposes. So Paul writes the chalice of benediction, which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of the Christ and the bread, which we break? Is it not the partaking of the body of the Lord? For we, being many, are one bread, one body, all that partake of the one bread. Behold, Israel, according to the flesh, not the spirit, the flesh, are not they that eat the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. So a rhetorical question to the church of Corinth, who received the grace given freely of baptism into the mystical body of Christ, so that they could participate in the Holy Mass, which Paul is describing here. And all Catholics know that you know they hear these words and and, and they see it every, you know every Sunday of their life and of course if they go to daily mass even more. So it shows the contrast between the Israel of the flesh and the Israel of the spirit. And the reason for the immaculate conception is due to the holiness of God of the God Man Jesus Christ. The reason for a baptism is due to the holiness of the God Man Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. So. Uh, Paul says, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? It is a rhetorical question to which the only non-heretical answer to the question is yes. You can't get around this. There's no other answer, any other answer, and you're a heretic. So it is, is the body and blood of Christ, and it does consummate our union with him by partaking of his glorified body and blood, by being partakers of what is offered to the Father. So there's no metaphor here, and if it was only a metaphor, Paul would be doing a huge disservice to the flock, not being clear with them here. And even a in a letter that could that that could be intercepted, he he still would have had to have been clear. So the same Paul addressing the church says we must be completely united in one faith. This is one doctrine of faith, and the church was dedicated to the doctrine, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. From the beginning, the breaking of the bread uh, and the prayers was always understood as the Holy Mass. There was never a time when it wasn't. So there would be no rhetorical question here if the ones Paul is writing to were not already taught the faith and who were not already participating in the Holy Mass, living the new covenant in obedience to the faith as the body of Christ. There would be no rhetorical question here if before a word of Scripture was ever written, well, one of the essential aspects of the faith was believing in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Right. So Paul wasn't really asking the question as a as a quiz, as a theological quiz, uh, as much as he was reminding them and bringing it into their uh, into their consciousness that they needed to remember 
who it is that they're receiving in the Eucharist. By the way, you were correct about St. Basil, born in uh, 330 AD, died in 379. That places his entire lifetime before the first Bible was produced. So it's just another example of how we had a church before we had a Bible. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, so we should not see scripture as a magic eight ball, you know, looking at it through our 21st century sensibilities, but we should use reason and look at it through the lens of a first century Jewish convert. And uh, of course, the, you know, we, we need to look at it through logical deduction. You know, I, I was talking in, in, in the last uh, 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 show we did and I was saying I come from the background. I retired as a lieutenant from the prison system where I was judge and jury from infractions to, you know, new felonies. And you learn to think in that environment. You learn to look at facts. And, you know, we judge things by the preponderance of the evidence, which is it's not that it has something that has the most evidence, but has the most evidence that holds the most weight the most factual evidence and Catholicism. If you take it from the perspective of the covenant reality and you believe Christ, when he says, this is my body, everything comes together and you have tons of evidence that is of quality evidence. There's actually a lot of things Paul would never have said. And and we're going to go through this to just to create this imagery. Uh, he would never have said if he did not believe that through the sacramental life, we truly enjoy being part of the body of Christ in a mystical reality and that the Eucharist is true. As the body of Christ, we participate in how Jesus established the general redemption of the world. Uh, the Holy Mass is the true Passover. And so this does not happen outside of Christ because Christ is the head of the body, which makes these things reality on the spiritual plane. Uh, we walk by faith, not by sight, though. We, we discuss this imagery of the body and the head of the body and, and our high priest and our mediator and taking us into that holy of holies, you know, spiritually, you know, with the hosts of heaven. So Paul would never have said, behold, Israel, according to flesh, are not those who offer the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. If he did not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist inside the body, uh, further teaching the church how in the Holy Mass, the body who offers the second part of the cross, the fruit of the cross, also partakes of the altar. So he would never have said, we have an altar at which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat of. The Levitical priests could not participate in a spiritual reality. The graces obtained from the Christian altar uh, without baptism into the body of Christ. Therefore, Jesus says, wear your wedding garments or there'll be uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The wedding garments are the, are the white baptismal garments. Uh, some imagery here, you know, the bride is prepared by, by the groom. Peter says, baptism now saves you. The wedding is consummated. Jesus says, this is my body. It's uh, the, the beauty of the true relationship through the Eucharist is, is just amazing. You know, Paul would never have said, oh, you foolish Galatians, who before your very eyes, Christ is per, uh, portrayed as crucified before you. Christ is portrayed as crucified before them 
because Christ has been crucified once and for all, and in the Holy Mass, at the consecration of the bread and wine, through the action of the Holy Spirit, Christ is made present before us and before the Father, before the Father sees the sins of the world. So uh, this is all imagery of the meeting tent. We spiritually are present in, in uh, at the cross. Uh, so who is there with us? Uh, just a little side note here. Our spiritual mother, of course, because we uh, these presentations, all these images come together in, in the spiritual reality. The Bible is, you know, it's it's put to paper by man, but it's God and it's God's words. So the Eucharist is the veil between our sinful world and the Father. And uh, this is some beautiful stuff. This, these are old books, but uh, the, this priest writes just something really beautiful. Uh, from the book, The Incredible Catholic Mass, we read that the Holy Ghost is the agent in this mystery we know from the liturgy of the Apostle James Immediately before the consecration, we find this prayer. Send down, O Lord, we beseech thee upon these proposed gifts, thy Holy Spirit, that coming, that coming them with his holy and glorious presence, he may hollow them and make this bread the holy body and this cup the holy blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Almost identical are the words employed in the liturgy of St. Clement, Pope and Martyr. We beseech thee, O Lord, to send down thy Holy Spirit upon this oblation, that he may make this bread the body, this chalice the blood of thy Christ. Both these eminent saints, who were contemporaries, attribute the transubstantiation of bread and wine not to Christ, but to the Holy Ghost. And him they invoke to complete the work. For as the Holy Ghost effected the incarnation of the Son of God, According to the testimony of the Archangel Gabriel, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow thee. So, in every Mass, he accomplishes the renewal of this mystery. This is also indicated by the action of the priest, who, before making the first sign of the cross over the host and chalice, after they have been offered, elevates his eyes toward heaven, stretches out both his hands, and joining them again, invokes the Holy Ghost in these words. Come, O Sanctifier, Almighty, Eternal God, and bless this sacrifice prepared to thy holy name. This proves beyond a doubt that the Holy Ghost descends from heaven to bless and hollow the holy sacrifice. Even so, Ambrose says in his liturgy, Send down, O Lord, the invisible majesty of thy Holy Spirit, as he descended of old upon the holocausts of the patriarchs. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. The same Holy Spirit who brought Christ to us in the, in the womb of Mary brings Christ to us on the altar. It's, it, it's, the, most in, it, it, it's the most incredible miracle your eyes can behold, and yet you have to see it through the eyes of faith because your fleshy eyes can't behold it. It your 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 eyes of your flesh don't perceive the change, and yet the change is real. And we have these great saints testifying that the change is real long before we had a Bible. 
Yeah, and this is why I wanted to earlier just start to bring in a little bit of that mystery of what's going on with the Shekinah. So, and in order for there to be a, a worthy offering through the body, the body was made worthy through the justification and sanctification of baptism and the sprinkling of blood that speaks better than that of Abel that occurs in every holy mass. And uh, uh, this actually we know through our history and traditions back to the apostles that this destroys venial sins because there's no shed, there's no removal of sins without shedding the blood. So in order for the bride to offer herself with the Eucharist through Christ to the Father for the general redemption of the world, purified of, of all these venial sins, we have this incredible grace as a member of the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. So here's where we offer ourselves as a sacrifice of a of pure heart through a sacramental life, including the humble act of confession as, as part of the way. And without confession, there, you know, it, it, it's, it's a terrible situation because there's no cure for mortal sins, effects on the soul, and mortal sin, which is a separation from grace. So uh, if we go back to the, the book, The Incredible Mass, again, we read, uh, to this point, we have been inquiring in what way the precious blood of Christ is shed in the Holy Mass. We shall now see how it is sprinkled. For we know that as the precious blood of Christ is shed when Mass is celebrated, so it is likely sprinkled upon all who are present and poured out upon their souls. Of this we have a clear type in the Old Testament, to which St. Paul refers when he says how Moses sprinkled the blood of the calves and goats upon all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. He says this in Hebrews 9.20. So the words Christ employed when he consecrated the chalice at the Last Supper are almost identical. This is the New Testament in my blood. St. Paul adds, in the passage already quoted, It is necessary, therefore, that the pattern of heavenly things should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. By this he means to say, the Jewish synagogue, which was a type of the Catholic Church, was cleansed by the sprinkling of the blood of calves and goats, whereas the Catholic Church is cleansed by the blood of the Lamb of God. Now, in order that anything be cleansed, either with blood or with water, it must be or moistened with blood or water. Thus, if our souls are cleansed by the blood of Christ in the Mass, they must be sprinkled therewith as we will show, we will now proceed to show. And he goes on and says, St. Chrysostom says, Thou seest that Christ is emulated in the Mass. Thou seest that the people present are sprinkled and marked with a crimson blood from his veins. In this passage, this great doctor of the Church expressly asserts that in the Holy Mass, the blood of Christ is not merely, not nearly poured out for us, but poured out on us. And mm. all of this must be seen within the context of the mystical body of Christ. So that's a very, very important distinction. So when you hear people say that that they're saved by the blood of Christ, that the blood of Christ has been poured out upon me and covered my sins, 
we're not speaking just of a symbolic reality. We're speaking of a, of, a, of a literal reality here. This is how we participate in the blood of Christ. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. And, you know, we moved from, you know, type to heavenly reality. Mm-hmm. And Protestants have moved from type to type. So, therefore, when Jesus, through Paul, is saying he presents his church to the Father, he's presenting his body, which has been spiritually prepared to offer the true Passover for the hosts of heaven, already made perfect, as, as we see in Hebrews 12, uh, 22, says we come to Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem, even to our mediator, Jesus Christ. To the church at Ephesus, where, where Timothy uh, was, was bishop, you know, Paul writes, and again, we, we see this from inside the context of this body of Christ living the sacramental life. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it by the laver of the word, uh, water in the word of life, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So also ought men love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hateth his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes his flesh as Christ does the church. Because, not symbolic, reality, because we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. And he goes on and says, this is a great sacrament. Some of the other translations have the word mystery. From mystery, we get mysterium, sacramentum, sacrament. But he goes on and says, I speak of Christ in the church. And, of course, as, as we discussed in our last presentation, that lover is, 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 a, is a type for being born again through baptism. Right. So they take all of it and they turn it into symbolic language. I'm reminded of what Paul said to Timothy of a church that makes a pretense of religion while denying its power. And here spelled out is, is the literal power of receiving Christ himself, his body and blood, uh, in a very real way, so it is. It's, it's breathtaking when you really think about it. And, and it's so sad because, you know, if if you love Christ, if you live in that charity, then you want unity. You know, you want unity with all your brothers and sisters, and that all, unity can only come through truth, and truth can only come through dying to self. So Paul would never have said Christ our true pass, which is pass being Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, let us keep the feast, if he did not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, uh, is present on the altar and in the feast after the offering. So the offering uniting heaven and earth of the body of of Christ in, in the true Passover, this, this is what occurs here. And you cannot separate the body of Christ from the Eucharist and from the memorial sacrifice of the cross. 
you injure the very vitals of the gospel. So a few questions to our, to our Protestant brothers and sisters here. I want, I want to appeal to just to reason here. Uh, did the Israelites eat the lamb before the angel of death passed over? Is Jesus the, the true lamb of God? Is the bread bread before the blessing or flesh? Did God say his flesh is real food? Is bread and wine real food? Well, you know, of, of course it is. So can the word who sustains matter and time and existence place his glorified body, soul, and divinity in bread and wine and keep the material presence of real food and drink before our senses. So when we partake of the body and blood of Christ, it is the Father who sees the true reality of what is being presented to him as the veil between him and the sins of the world. This is faith. This is the new covenant. So we're not talking about carnal, unglorified flesh, and Jesus is not dead. We're talking about God that transcends the universe in a bodily essence that produced more energy than the sun as it flowed through the shroud, a body that does not conform to time and space. Jesus is more naturally presented in all of the tabernacles in the world 24 hours a day from the rising of the sun till its setting than he was in the flesh walking among men. So this presence is what most likely suppressed the demonic world that had completely had complete control before Christ in the Eucharist. And in John 16, 23, Jesus tells us, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you, have, you have, may have peace. In the world you shall have distress, but have confidence I have overcome the world. Or maybe a better translation might be, Maybe maybe I have subdued the world. So why do Protestants look to the law of nature from the one who transcends those laws? Many do so in a subconscious process due to not wanting to lose obedience to faith in the Catholic Church. We all know God can do anything, so now you should know why. Those who partake of the one bread are part of the one body, and they begin to be so through the purification of baptism, of course. You do not pour new wine into old wineskins. You must wear your wedding garments, or there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is my body, God says. So through these words of Paul that we have just discussed, even before one develops faith, he or she should see through reason that it would only make sense that they were ever even written if Jesus calling his body and blood real food and real tr- drink is true, they look completely out of place if this was not true. And if true, those who have been baptized in the church who are purified in order to partake of the one bread in the one body. If true, then Protestantism is under a diabolical deception that separated them from the new covenant. There's extreme cognitive dissonance here. But this is, is obvious because the Protestant does not only look different from the faith of the disciples and the apostles, but it's worlds apart from it. It's, it's not even close. And they continue just to you know, ignore this. The disciples and the apostles live the Catholic faith, and their true faith it is essential to believe in the Eucharist. 
You cannot live the new covenant without belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Satan's deceptions have been that damaging on our world. Please continue. So I need to backtrack a little bit here to our, our last discussions on the diabolical deception of the born-again movement, where we talked about the meeting tent showing us salvation through Christ and the church. Uh, we'll look at type fulfilled in the heavenly reality here. Uh, you know, the problem with Protestant, as we discussed, is they're going from type to type. So here's how scripture shows us we spiritually enter, enter the body of Christ. The the meeting tent, God gave Moses very specific instructions to build. Uh, the outer tent was covered in coarse uh, animals here. We read in, in Matthew 3, 4, And the same John had his garments of camel's hair, and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist wore coarse animals here. The outer tent shows us the, the baptism of repentance for the Jews that John proclaimed in preparing the way for the Lord. So hmm. before the go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I find what you're saying fascinating. So it's almost like a foreshadowing of the uh, repent, preaching of the repentance of John. Yeah, yeah, it is. So before the Levitical priest could sacrifice at the altar or enter the holies. They had to wash the bronze lava, and uh, there's a disclaimer here where, where God's very strong on it. He says, you better do so, and he says, lest perhaps you died. So now, now look at the imagery here. Jesus says we must be born again of water and spirit in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we can place the words, lest perhaps we die, for a spiritual vision here, as, as this was explained by God to Moses for those who did not wash at the lava before entering the veil. So this is the first step to entering the veil. And Paul in Titus 3.5 writes, Not by the works of justice which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the lava of regeneration and renovation of the Holy Ghost, whom we have poured forth upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his glory, the of everlasting life. So there's purification hey, there. Hey, Luke. That is. Luke. Go ahead. You, you, I'm sorry, you broke up really bad there. Could you read that last paragraph again? Uh, did you want me to read Titus 3 5? Start, start from not by the works of justice. So. Titus 3.5 says, not by the works of justice which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the lava of regeneration and renovation of the Holy Ghost, whom he hath poured forth upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we may be heirs according to the hope of life everlasting. Okay. Got so, it that time. Okay. So we see purification here. And... Uh, that is a type for, for, for baptism, the laver. And Paul shows us that this purification is needed to enter in type the veil or in the heavenly reality of the flesh of Christ's mystical body. In, in the body, as heirs of the promises Abraham fulfilled, is where we establish hope of everlasting life. 
So we do not begin our journey, but we do not enter the body of Christ through our own justices or anything we can do uh, on our own because baptism into the promise of Abraham fulfilled is grace given freely by regeneration and renovation of the Holy Spirit, as Titus 3.5 tells us. And here's where we we see says in Hebrews 10:19, having therefore brethren a confidence in the entering into the holies by the blood of Christ a new and living way which he hath dedicated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh and the high priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart in fullness of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with clean water that actual part there about the washing of clean water is how we get into that veil, because that's also you know the the uh, process through the bronze laver. Entering the flesh. Uh, do you have something to say? No, I'm listening. Oh, okay. For some reason, I hear a little background or something there. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. So entering the flesh of entering the flesh of Christ is not a metaphor. We move from type to heavenly reality, not from type to type. And uh, I can't stress that enough. So entrance into the mystical body of Christ does not occur without baptism into the church. And the veil is the flesh of Christ. And yet Jesus married a Gentile bride. So we cannot separate the flesh of Christ from the bride. And Jesus even gives us a spiritual message of this reality when he said, to, uh, when he said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. So there's, there's so many mis, uh, messages of the marriage. We see this coming marriage in the words of the prophet Hosea, where he says, and I will spouse thee to be forever, and I will spouse thee to me in justice and judgment and in mercy and in commiserations, and I will spouse thee to be in faith, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. And he goes on and says, And I will sow unto her, uh, sow unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy on her that was without mercy. And I will say to that which is not my people, Thou art my people. And they shall say, Thou art my God. So this is obviously us, the Gentile you know, nation who was baptized into the body of Christ. We visualize outside of the concept of time and space, the bride responding to the groom. A perfect groom will marry a sinful bride. In Song of Solomon's, we hear, I am black but beautiful, O ye daughter of Jerusalem, as the tents of cedar, as the curtains of Solomon. So these are messages, these are love stories going on here uh, between the bride and the groom. And uh, they could only be understood in that way because there's a lot of imagery here that you cannot apply to two human beings. So mm -hmm. at the cross, when Jesus began to quote Psalms 22, he is leading us to finish the psalm. So let's look at part of the psalm. It says, O God, my God, look upon me. Why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my sins. I would declare thy name to my brethren in the midst of the church. I will praise thee. All the ends of the earth shall remember and shall be converted to the Lord. And all the kindreds of the Gentiles, Gentiles, 
shall adore in his sight. There shall be declared to the Lord a generation to come, and the heavens shall show forth his justice to a people that shall be born, which the Lord hath made. So, and this people will form a great church, which is the body of Christ. So John the Baptist was the friend of the bride, and the cross was was a marriage bed. But it's almost like John the Baptist was the best man. <laughs> that exactly. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. So John tells us. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth with joy, because the bridegroom's voice, this my my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. So the Gospel of John is actually, you know, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Origen refers to this, and, and when he does so, he, he explains that nobody could understand this Gospel, even though it's, you know, putting down in words unless they take Mary as their own. So so he, he sees the deep spiritual nature of the Gospel of John. So uh, Wedding Feast of the Lamb, that begins Jesus' ministry with honoring a marriage, where we see the miracle of changing water into wine. Uh, the words, he saved the best wine for last, gives us the spiritual imagery of the new covenant uniting to the blood of Christ in, in, in the final covenant with man. And Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. So entering the body of Christ is being a member of the bride and entering the very glorified flesh of Christ, as Paul shows us in Ephesians 5.29. Here he writes, for no man ever hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, as also Christ doth the church, because we are members of him, body of his flesh and of his bones, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. This is a great sacrament, but I speak of Christ in the church. I need to emphasize this. In many of the Catholic cathedrals over the high altars, you often see the formation of the Jewish chuppah. And the, this is a four-pillared tent under which the marriage vows are expressed are in the same place where the Holy Spirit actually consecrates the Eucharist uh, in, in the cathedrals. It's above the altar. So we read from the, the Jewish encyclopedia, a Hebrew word signifying a canopy, especially the bridal canopy. Subsequently, it became also the term for a wedding. Originally, the hoopah was the chamber in which the bride awaited the groom for the marital union. Hence the biblical statement that the sun comes out of his tabernacle in the morning as a bridegroom cometh out of his chamber. So the bridal process, a festival affair in which the whole town participated in our truth, the entire church. So many of the fathers understood this marriage, but I don't know of anyone who puts it more beautifully to words uh, than, than Augustine. Uh, Augustine writes, every celebration of the Eucharist is a celebration of marriage. The church nuptials are celebrated. The king's son is about to marry a wife, and the king's son is himself the king. And the guests frequenting the marriage are themselves the bride. For all the church, Christ's bride, which the beginning and first fruits is the flesh of Christ. 
because there was a bride joined to the bridegroom in the flesh. You know, it's amazing um, since you talked about that that hope of um, being uh, taking the, the the praise of prominence over the high altars in a Catholic cathedral. Uh, I, I I can envision that at the shrine of the Immaculate Conception, which is of course is the biggest uh, Catholic shrine in North America. You see that right in front of that that huge image of, of Christ with the stern look on his face, that, that very famous image, right in front of that, you see that, that, that four-pillar tent with, uh, with Mary on top of it. So I can envision exactly what you're talking about. That's, that's, that's the depths and beauty and mystery of our faith. And most Catholics don't even begin to touch it. You know, there's a lot of Catholics here on, you know, I'm amazed by, you know, on our, uh, in our discussion groups. And it's just a beautiful thing. But so many Catholics really don't even live their faith because they don't even understand their faith. Right. So, so living in this sacramental truth is the environment was in, you know, it put everything together, put all the spiritual imagery together. And this was the environment Paul was in. When he wrote, therefore, seeing we have this ministration according as we have obtained mercy, we faint not, but we renounce the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor adulterating the word of God, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel also be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of the unbelievers, that the light of the gospel of the glory of, the, of Christ, who is the image of God, should not shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord, and ourselves your servants through Jesus. For God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Wow. So it, it, it puts things in more perspective when you look at the whole mystical body and you read Paul's words afterwards. Amazing. I kind of tear up when I think of this stuff sometimes. Yeah, it's, 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 it's absolutely overwhelming to absorb it. It's just, um, like you said a minute ago, you just, it just, our faith just goes so deeper, so much deeper than many Catholics even begin to imagine. Yeah, it sure does. So, Irenaeus, as, as, as we talked about, explained that understanding comes from understanding God's covenants with man. So understanding includes understanding how those covenants uh, are fulfilled. And uh, as I said earlier, but I want to focus on it a little more. So the first time Jesus, the incarnation of God on earth, refers to covenant where he ordained his first priest to the washing of their feet and giving them a new precept. So imagine... Just imagine the incredible mystery of this, the majesty and holiness of it. God who established the type of Passover in the people of Israel came in the flesh 1,300 years later to 
to establish the true meaning of Passover. As he said, I strongly desire to celebrate this Passover with you. You know, think about that. The one who sustains the universe in existence strongly desires to celebrate the true Passover with his creatures and through his creatures, which began with the marriage bed of the cross. Augustine writes, like a bridegroom, Christ went forth from his nuptial chamber. He came even to the marriage bed of the cross and sensed the creature sighing in her breath. He surrendered himself to torment the bride and a communication of love. It is consummated. This is my blood of the new covenant. Do this in memory of me. You know, like I said, we can't help uh, but to overlap on many of these things, but I want to emphasize what is going on here. And Protestants really need to see the beauty of the covenant God established. Uh, we're going to go a little more back to technical. So I don't remember where I got this quote. I, I, I've just tons of information over the last you know 30 years or so. And uh, so I'm simply going to say this is not mine, but it gets to the heart of what God on earth was doing at the Last Supper. He was establishing the new Exodus and the new Passover, which is the fulfillment of the type that will be presented uh, will be presented by his body, with he as head of the body and mediating the true Passover to the Father for the general redemption of the world. And again, we do not see what is truly present; the Father does. Mm-hmm. So let's look at this word memory. Uh, do this in memory of me. So this, this quote starts, the apostles and early believers recognize the sacrificial character of Jesus' instructions. Do this in memory. Uh, uh, do this in remembrance. Our anamnesis uh, of me is better translated. Offer this as my memorial sacrifice. So anamnesis, remembrance, has sacrificial overtones. It occurs only eight times in the New Testament and the Greek, all but once, Wisdom 16.6, it is a sacrificial context. So in these cases, the term anomnesis can be translated as memorial portion, memorial offering, or memorial sacrifice. Thus, in the remaining two occurrences in anomnesis, Luke 22.19 and 1 Corinthians 11.24, Christ's words, do this in remembrance of me, can be translated as offer this for my memorial sacrifice. So, again, the types are fulfilled in the heavenly realities of the Eucharist. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He came to change the types into their heavenly realities. So, Catholicism, like Protestants you know, often say, is not replacement theology. It's fulfillment theology. So, if we look at the example uh, I gave in the beginning... And now you can place these examples as types for those who are living inside the body of Christ. We read again from Leviticus, And thou shalt put upon them the dearest frankincense, that the bread may be for a memorial of the oblation of the Lord. We read in Numbers, If at any time you shall have a banquet, end on your festival days, on the first day of your months, 
You shall sound the trumpets over the holocausts and the sacrifices of peace offerings that they may be. So that's clearly pointing forward to what Jesus is saying. It's the, it's basically the same verbiage where Jesus is saying, do this in remembrance of me. It's, it's showing that it's not, it, you know, Protestants like to point to it as something that's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's just a token of, of, of our memory of him or, you know, kind of a nice gesture, but it, it's, it's much more than that. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's the fulfillment of the covenant. It's giving us redemption through our true Passover, through Christ, offering himself through with us for the general redemption of the world, and there's no individual salvation without the general redemption. Wow. So this is the primary reason why there is a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood a mystical body of Christ that Peter explains as have to have been chosen to offer spiritual sacrifices worthy of God as the body of Christ. Peter says you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. This is where there is a predestination and election, not through this foolish understanding of Calvin as predestined to salvation or hell, but predestined as a holy nation. Holy meaning set apart for God. So it's set apart as the body of Christ to offer the true Passover for the general redemption of the world while Satan has the world attacking its, its, its own general redemption. So let's build up another layer here because there's just tons. And there's no way to get around this because the, the amount of evidence for, for this is just it's astronomical. So the word covenant comes from the ancient Semitic word berit, which means an oath uh, secured in a, a blood bond. So primitive people who entered covenant agreements solidify the covenant through a blood oath that is not to be broken. If it is broken, then the one who broke it is to die. One visual of this would be how two different people entering into a covenant relationship would both cut their arms, place their wounds together, and tie their arms together while both sources of between the two parties. Uh, another way, a little more you know, vampiric, I guess, <laughs> would be actually uh, um, they, would, they would suck each other's uh, blood. So the Jewish encyclopedia actually gives a good image of this. Uh, it says, agreement between two contracting parties originally sealed with blood, a bond or a law, a permanent religious dispensation, the old primitive way of concluding a covenant to cut a covenant was for the covenanters to cut each other's arm and suck the blood and mixing the blood, rendering them brothers of the covenant. And the Jewish Encyclopedia also tells us about this meal. Uh, the Jew, it goes on and says to show a covenant meal, it says a right expressive of the same idea, the cutting of a sacrificial animal into two parts between which the contracting parties pass, showing thereby that they are bound to each other. The eating together of the meat, which usually follows, reiterating the same idea, 
Originally, the covenant was a bond of life, fellowship, where the mingling of the blood was deemed essential to break the covenant of the brothers was a heinous sin and imposed the penalty of death. The Mosaic law therefore forbade Israel making a covenant with the idolatrous inhabitants of Canaan or with their gods. So it is the same nature that types of covenant bonds and imperfect bonds were perfected in Christ. Our God came in the flesh to a covenant meal to secure the final covenant with man. So the New Testament says something about not making, not taking uh, oaths or blood oaths or, or, or explain that. It almost seems like there's a contradiction there. Can you clear that up? Um, um, I'd have to get more information on that, but uh, the the blood oaths are only types, just like in Leviticus. I mean, uh, you, you can't really see these things as as even being something that you know is reasonable unless you look at it through the sacramental nature, where the uh, they were told not to take of the of the blood of the animal because you become one with the animal. So these types in itself are things that show us the future union with Christ, but they also show us the prohibition of how the Israelites could not enter that union. So a lot of things that were prohibited become their heavenly reality by entering the body of Christ. And we see okay, this so, in so I have two Peter's for you. Two for you real quick. Matthew five, thirty four to thirty seven and James five twelve. Okay. You have your Bible so, in front of you? Uh, Matthew 5. Let's go here. Matthew 5. Yes. Matthew, well, what's the verse? Matthew 5, 34 to 37. Let's look at that one first. Okay. Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, uh, well, before that, you have that understanding of divorce we talked about, uh, where Christ has entered into uh, a new relation that uh, there, there is no divorce from his own body. And then, let's see here. Okay, I lost it again. You said 37? 34 to 37. 34 to 7. Okay, again, you have heard that it was said to them, Behold, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform thy oaths to the Lord. But I say to you not to swear at all, neither by heaven or it is the throne of God, nor by the earth or it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shall you swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black, 
but let your speech be yea, yea, and no, no. So I think he's still talking to the Jews here before the new covenant. And so uh, they have already fallen from, you know, uh, keeping the new covenant. And so I, I think it's a totally different environment. But it, it, it's something I really haven't gone in, in much into. Do you, do you have a, another understanding? No, I just uh, I, I uh, it's just something that came to mind with what you read. So I, I just wanted to to clarify if there is if if you see a conflict. Yeah, I well I don't see conflicts because in the, the separation from the old to, to the new, there's liberation. And there's, there's, there's just a lot of things different. And we could go on and, and see some of these differences as, as we move on. Uh, we'll see a little bit of this as, as we move on. So the covenant meals among God's people are sacrificial in nature and are memorials of the covenant between God and man. God is present uh, at a covenant meal. This is often described as a marriage between God and man because when the Israelites broke their covenant with God through idolatry and marriage to pagans, the prophets called them out as a whore in scarlet or, or, or fornicator. So they were already in this state uh, when, uh, when, when Jesus told them not to you know, uh, swear oaths. So when a covenant bond is broken, someone has to die, and Jesus willingly gave up his life. Paul writes to the Hebrew church, where there is a testament, the death of the testator must uh, of necessity come in. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is as yet of no strength while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither was the first indeed dedicated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been read by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoyed unto you. <coughs> the tabernacle also, and all the vessels of the tree, in like manner he sprinkled with blood. And almost all things according to the law are cleansed with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission, no remission of sins. So, and it is necessary, therefore, that the patterns of the heavenly things should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with their sacrifices. Patterns of heavenly realities is, is, is what Paul is saying. In this destruction of the covenant bond, uh, Jesus who gave up his life so that a remnant of the Jews could be the fulfillment of the covenant in his mystical body. He even took on the curse for destroying his own house, uh, the old covenant family. So there's really no oath secured in, in the Old Covenant. In type, we see this in the book of Ezra as a punishment for anyone who destroys the temple. We, we read from Ezra. Uh, this, this is really neat. It's really fascinating. And I've made a decree that if any anyone, whoever, shall alter this commandment, a beam be taken from his house and set up, and he be nailed upon it, and his house be confiscated. So it appears that Paul had a premonition of this destruction of the temple when he wrote to, to the Hebrews. He wrote, Now insane and new, he hath made the former old, and that's with decayeth grow old is near its end. So 
Hebrews was probably written around 68 AD before the destruction of the temple. And after the destruction, there could no longer be a Levitical priesthood. The type for the mystical body of Christ was, was destroyed. So in addition to Christ say, taking on the... You said go ahead. when was it written? Uh, probably around 68. It was written before the, temp- the destruction of the temple. But it's, you know, it's pretty obvious. 58 AD? I'm thinking more closer to 68. I'm thinking right before. Oh, so... So it was written like during the, the, actually the reign of the four emperors, like two years before the destruction of the temple. Yeah, I'm th- I'm thinking somewhere somewhere around there, and, it, and it's questioned whether this was actually written by Paul, also. So before the destruction of the temple, so after the destruction, there could no longer be a Levitical priesthood. The type for the mystical body of Christ was destroyed. It's just moved out of the way. So in addition to Christ taking on the curse of the oath, he took on the curse of the destruction of the temple so that through baptism, a remnant would be saved. Yet also through baptism, those Gentiles, us, could enter the promise that Abraham fulfilled. And as we saw in, in the Old Testament, that image of the marriage uh, uh, with, with the Gentiles being fulfilled. So even though the Israelites failed in their oath, God did not forget his promise to Abraham. So the early church had a clear understanding of this, and we can see how clear when we read a, a document called the uh, Didascalia, which is uh, also, um, it, we don't have a real clear uh, origin for this because a lot of these documents, we find that uh, uh, they're added to, and so if they're added to at a certain point, that's the point we date it, but the context of, of the documents we see in, in earlier things, uh, earlier understandings. So in the Discalia, we read, Him they denied and said, We have no God to go before us. And they made them a molten calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to a graven image. Therefore the Lord was angry and in his hot anger, yet with the mercy of his goodness, he bound them with a second legislation and laid heavy burdens on them and a hard yoke upon their neck. And he says, Now no longer if thou shalt make as formerly, but he said, make an altar and sacrifice continuously as though they had need of these things. Wherefore, he laid upon them continual burnt offerings with a necessity and caused them to abstain from meats by means of distinctions of meats. For uh, from that time were animals discerned clean and unclean. From that time were separations and purifications and baptisms and sprinklings. From that time were sacrifices and offerings and tables. From that time were burnt offerings and oblations and showbread and the offering up of the sacrifices and firstlings and redemptions and he goats uh, for sin and vows and many other things marvelous. For because of the manifold sins, there were laid upon them customs unspeakable, but by none of them did they abide. But they again provoked the Lord. For the second legislation was imposed for the making of the calf and for idolatry. But you, through baptism, have been set free from idolatry. And from the second legislation, which was imposed on account of idols, for in the gospel he renewed and fulfilled and affirmed the law. But in the second legislation he did away with and abolished. 
So the gospel affirmed the law of unconditional love and entrance into the body of Christ and released the Jews from the second legislation through the cross by way of baptism into the body of Christ. So this also shows us where Protestants erred in not properly identifying the difference between the law of works as a second legislation for Jews only and charity, which is being Christ a man in our journey of transforming grace through which we are saved. So the second legislation is literally the law of works. This is what Paul was referring to when he said we are saved by faith, not works of the law. Right. And and they just jumble it all up and say, well, Paul is saying that works have nothing to do with salvation, which is not what Paul is saying. You can't get through Romans chapter 2 and come to that conclusion very, very clearly that you, you either have to have two different types of works that Paul is talking about, or Paul is schizophrenic. I mean, those are the only two conclusions you can come to. Yes, yes. So when Jesus established the new covenant meal and oath, he was beginning to fulfill his promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. So it would be universal both Jews and Gentiles, as we've seen in all the prophecies. And even though Israel failed in their covenant, God did not forget his promise to Abraham. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn describes this you know, interesting correlation here. It says, the covenant and the oath, these terms are so closely related that the Bible sometimes uses them synonymously, as when Zacharias speaks of God's holy covenant, the oath which he swore. So, And so the oath is the covenant, and the covenant is the oath. So from Dr. Hahn's explanation, we can see that the covenant and the oath is a life of obedience to the faith in, in the mystical body of Christ. So obedience to the faith, living the religion and ritual of the new covenant, is interchangeable with the oath. And the memorial of the new covenant is a constant renewal through all generations until the second coming and sharing the glorified body and blood of Christ. So Paul sums this up in the phrase obedience to the faith. There was no obedience to the faith throughout time. Then there's no general redemption of the world. Protestants should thank us for our obedience uh, to the faith uh, of the Passover. So this is what Paul and the church understood when Paul wrote uh, the cup of benediction that we bless. This is not participation in the blood of Christ. A question to our Protestant friends, is this not participation in our blood bond covenant oath with God? Well, yes, it is. And the bond is only true if the blood of Christ is truly present. So in this covenant reality is where Paul says, Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. Or know ye not that he who is joined to a harlot is made one body? For they shall uh, be, saith he, two in one flesh. But he is joined to the Lord is of one spirit. So flying fornication, every sin that a man doth within the body. But he committeth fornication and sin against his own body. So it's why Paul can say, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up those things that are wanting in the sufferings of Christ in my flesh for his body, which is the church. It is how Christ, who is a perfect lamb, a sacrifice without sin, can after his death take on sin, being united to a sinful bride. Uh, we hear the phrase in the Psalms, uh, Song of Psalms. I am black but calmly. 
This is what Paul shows us when he says, for Christ, therefore, we are ambassadors, God as it is, as it were, extorting by us for Christ, exhorting by us for Christ. So we beseech you, be reconciled to God, him who knew no sin, he hath made sin for us, that we might be made the justice of God in him. So this is deep spiritual things. Jesus was not sin while he was in the flesh, or else he would have not been a perfect lamb of sacrifice. So Jesus could only have become sin through a true sacramental union with the church as the mystical body of Christ. Right. So this, this idea of penal substitution is just it's just garbage. It's untenable. Well, it's 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 evil. So in this yeah. understanding of being part of the body as the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, who unites with heaven in the true Passover for the general redemption of the world, we are called to holiness. And Paul says, For we in spirit by faith wait for the hope of justice. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith that worketh through charity. And he talks about a, a, you know, a little leaven corrupt, corrupting the, the whole lump because we are called to the spiritual union. We are called to a sacrifice of a pure heart inside the body of Christ so that a little bad leaven doesn't mess up the whole lump. So in Christ Jesus is the same as the mystical body of Christ, which we enter into through baptism into the promise of Abraham fulfilled. And putting everything together, this is where you can see the true nature of Paul in his letter to the Galatians, where he says, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized in Christ and put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be in Christ, then you are the seed of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. So, and again, overlapping again here. Uh, Romans 9, from our last show, Romans 9 shows us that entering the promise fulfilled is entrance into the family of God. And Second Peter 1 shows us that the promise fulfilled includes divinization, which is the result of the graces of baptism. There's no entrance into the body of Christ that participates in the true Passover for the general redemption of the world without divinization of, of, of the soul. So there's a fascinating prophecy about Christ and Mary, which also shows us the mystical body of Christ in, in Luke's gospel. And well, we'll read it. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and for the resurrection of me in Israel, and for a sign which shall be contradicted. And thy own soul's sword shall pierce, that out of many hearts thoughts may be revealed. Out of many hearts thoughts may be revealed. Think about this. It mm-hmm. appears that these thoughts contemplated to the pierced heart of Mary are thoughts of the mystical body, contemplating the love of Christ through the cross, through the pierced heart of Mary. Now, what better image can you find for the rosary in which we, the body of Christ, unite in the sorrow with her for the sins of the world as we ask her to pray for us? Yeah, it very, very clearly shows how she was uh, mystically connected to the sufferings of Christ and how we are all, I mean, when you look at Genesis 315, and then you look at 
uh, Luke chapter 11. Then you look at John chapter 19. You look at Revelation 12. We see this theme over and over and over again of the rest of her children, the rest of the children of the woman. Uh, and and you see this whole image of the family, that we are the brothers and sisters of Christ. And you think that she wouldn't have a spiritual connection to that family, being that she has to be even more closely united to that body as being right. the mother of the body? Right. It's, it's, so, it's astounding. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, I mean, the depth of of, of the mysteries is it's a bottomless well. So it's treasure. Feel this, you? <laughs> yeah. It, it's a bottomless it, treasure. Yeah, and it's just beautiful. You, yeah. Your life, I'm sure Thomas Aquinas did that. <laughs> so as yeah. Catholics, we feel this union with heaven in our in our very souls. So when Protestants say we pray to dead saints, we know by their very definition of saint, they're wrong. A saint is united to God in the mystical body and is more alive in the body than than we are. So when we enter the promise of Abraham fulfilled, being purged of original sin and becoming divinized family God, we are in the presence of heaven 24-7. And it is this understanding, in this understanding, Paul wrote and therefore, we also having a great cloud of witnesses over our head, laying aside every weight and sin which surrounds us, let us run by patience to the fight proposed to us. In the same context, in Hebrews 12.22, Paul tells us that we have come to Mount Zion, to the church of the firstborn, to thousands of angels, to the spirits of the just made perfect. Now, this is the cloud of witnesses that surround us. Us who have been divinized in order to enter the family of God, therefore Jesus tells the church, you are not of the world. If you are of the world, the world will know its own. And no one understands Catholicism until they are given the grace to move toward Catholicism. Anyone who converts and enters the church will come to the conclusion that before they were enlightened by the truth, they only knew a religion of anti-Catholicism. So the old covenant world is um, is much different from the new and they can't see this, uh, you know, this differentiation, and they can't see the type fulfilled in the heavenly reality. So in the new, Jesus has corrected most of what we lost in the garden. We go right back to where we started. And Jesus has prepared a place for us. So a place that those before us have already gone to that places them as the cloud of witnesses, the church of the firstborn. In Matthew, we read, And Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the seat of his majesty, you also shall sit on twelve seats. So uh, we follow him into regeneration of baptism. He didn't need to be baptized. He showed us through baptism how we become sons of God. He showed us the path of the narrow road, the way. Revelations tells us, behold, I make things all, all things new. And Jesus actually rebukes those who do not see this, you know, this, this uh, communion of saints. He says, and as the, concerning the dead, that they rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses how in, how in the bush God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac? 
and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You right. therefore greatly err. That's God telling you you err when you don't see the spiritual reality, the mystical body of Christ on heaven in heaven and earth. And, and and the devil loves that. If he can, you know, divide and conquer is the oldest uh, military trick in the book, and, and the devil loves that. If he can divide us and conquer us in that way, that uh, as long as we don't understand that we are to pray with each other and for each other, uh, and that we are united in this great work, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Gone yeah. over two hours. We're now into the archive, so. Why don't we, get, we, uh, we probably got about ten minutes left if if you could do it. What's that? We probably got about ten minutes left if you could do it. Well, we we I mean you can if but just so you know we're not broadcasting live now, so people who listen in the archive will hear it. But we're past the live stream. But if you want to go ahead and finish up, go ahead. Yeah, well, why, why don't we do that? Because um, I figure, you know, people yeah. would probably. There'd probably be more people later who actually listen to it than mm-hmm. than, than live, I would think. But uh, I don't know. You know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, exactly. And uh, Luther was known to have conversations with Satan. And one of those conversations is very re- revealing. This is from a, a, a Patrick, a, a doctor, Father Patrick O'Hare. Well, I, guess, I guess he translated this from, from the German. But he said, read Luther's work works against the mass and the ordination of priests, where he tells of his famous disputation with the father of lies, who accosted him at midnight and spoke to him with a deep, powerful voice, causing the sweat to break forth from his brow and his heart to tremble and beat. In that celebrated conference, of which he was an exceptional witness and about which he never entertained the slightest doubt, he says plainly and unmistakably that the devil spoke against the mass and Mary and the saints, and that moreover, Satan gave him the most unqualified approval of his doctrine of justification by faith alone. Who now, we ask, in all sincerity, can be found except those appallingly blind to truth to accept such a man, approved by the enemy of souls, a spiritual teacher, and entrust to his guidance their eternal welfare? So, <laughs> right there shows you, you know, the heart of the issue. Yeah. So, uh, to close, uh, I want to go to Dr. David Anders, and I brought him up in the last radio show. And he's a convert to the Catholic faith and a doctor of biblical history. So... We're going to finish with him, and Dr. Anders writes, The church was the issue I kept coming back to. Evangelicals tend to view the church as an association of like-minded believers. Even the Reformers, Luther and Calvin, had a much stronger view of the church than this. But the ancient Christians had the most sublime doctrine of all. I used to see their emphasis on church as unbiblical, contrary to faith alone but begin to realize that it was my evangelical tradition that was unbiblical. Scripture teaches that the church is the body of Christ. Evangelicals 
tend to dismiss this as mere metaphor, but the ancient Christians thought of it as literally, albeit mystically true. St. Gregory of Nisan could say, he who beholds the church really beholds Christ. As I thought about this, I realized that it spoke to a profound truth about the biblical meaning of salvation. St. Paul teaches that the baptized have been united to Christ in his death so that they might also be united to him in his resurrection. This union literally makes the Christian a participate in the divine nature. And here he references 2 Peter 1.4, as, as we addressed earlier. St. Athanasius could even say, for he was made man that we may, we might be made God. And of course, we discussed this as in God, not right. God, separate, God separate from God. He goes on, the ancient doctrine of the church now made sense to me because I saw that salvation itself is nothing other than union with Christ and a continual growth into his nature. Church is no mere association of like-minded people. It's a supernatural reality uh, because it shares in the life and mystery of Christ. This realization also made sense to the church's sacramental doctrine. When the church baptizes, absolves sins, or above all, offers the holy sacrifice of the mass, it is really Christ who baptizes, absolves, and offers his own body and blood. The sacraments do not detract from Christ, they make him present. The scriptures are quite plain on the sacraments. If you take them at face value, you must conclude that baptism is the bath of rebirth, renewal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus meant it when he said, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He was not lying when he promised, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. This is exactly how the ancient Christians understood the sacraments. I can no longer accuse the ancient Christians of being unbiblical. On what grounds could I reject them at all? Christian doctrine, the church also made sense of the veneration of the saints and the martyrs. I learned that Catholic doctrine on the saints is just a development of this biblical doctrine of the body of Christ. <clears throat> Catholics do not worship the saints. They venerate Christ in his members. By invoking their intercession, Catholics merely confess that Christ is present and at work in his church in heaven. Protestants often object that the Catholic veneration of saints somehow detracts from the ministry of Christ. I understand now that the reverse is actually true. It is the Protestants who limit the reach of Christ's saving work by denying its implications for the doctrine of the church. My studies show this theology fleshed out in the devotion of the ancient church. As I continued my investigation of Augustine, I learned that this Protestant hero thoroughly embraced the veneration of the saints. Augustine scholar Peter Brown also taught me that saints were not incidental to ancient Christianity. They argue that you could not separate ancient Christianity from devotion to the saints. And he placed Augustine squarely in this tradition. Brown showed that this was no mere pagan importation into Christianity, but rather tied intimately to the Christian notion of salvation. Is that the clincher for you? That's I, I love that guy. <laughs> no, I'm just saying when when at, at that part of your faith journey, that was that was the clincher for you. Actually, I I, I was uh, I was baptized when I was a baby, and uh, uh, like like we discussed in one of my one of my earlier shows, 
I didn't really understand it until I had a, a spiritual experience with our Blessed Mother. And uh, at that point, I asked for, for wisdom uh, to bring people to God's truth. But that and would be you a, feel like you feel like that that prayer was answered right away. Actually, no. It, it, it took it took a while. It, it just after that, I just I just started absorbing things, and uh, you know, it got to the point where you know, I, I it was either work or that or or, or family, and uh, just those three things were 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 running my life. And I would be up in the middle of the night with a hundred different things going through my head, you know, being put together like this, like the seamless tapestry, you know, we image. And uh, some of those times I'd be saying, God, can I sleep now? <laughs> so it's it's been a beautiful journey, though. And it's just, and I fall more and more in love with it every day. And yeah. the love of Christ, I mean, I, the love of Christ in those imageries he gives us. Yeah, I'm just so glad that you're part of this uh, of this apostolate, and I just love you know where you know where it's going, despite you know some of the some of the bumps and some of the adversities that we that that we've had to uh, face, which I guess is not unexpected. But uh, I just love where it's going. I there's just so much real meat in what. And what you bring to the table, and 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 Ken and William, and it's just, it's it's a joy. It's been a joy, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. They're great guys, and thank you for you know developing this. And uh, we pray that uh, we pray that you know through love, you know, and self-sacrifice, and that uh, we really build this up. Yeah. Amen. Well, why don't you why don't you end us with a closing prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen and amen. And uh, I can't wait to find out what we're going over on next Monday. So. For those of you who have any comments or questions on today's show, you can email us at email at thefourpersons.com. And God bless you, and we'll see you a week from today back on the Lou Haskell Show. Good night, and God bless.